Hey everyone, welcome back to the 443 Security Simplified. I'm your host, Mark LaLiberty, and joining me today is... Corey, the rare pronouncer, Nockran. You're never going to let me live that down, are you? Whatever. On today's episode, we'll be discussing some TTPs from one of our favorite APTs. Uh, we'll go into some recent research on new evasion techniques that threat actors are using. Including your cooking then, preference for compressed archives. Uh-huh. Thanks, Corey. And then we will end with answers or potential answers to the question of, is our evil back? With that, let's go ahead and uh, cook our way in, I suppose. So we're going to start this week with an update from a APT that I feel like we've talked about fairly often on this podcast, usually in the wake of them hacking yet another cryptocurrency exchange or some form of phishing attack against security researchers. Uh, but if you haven't already guessed who we're talking about, uh, it is Lazarus, which is the nation state backed hacking group allegedly out of North Korea. Uh, well, they made the uh, the cybersecurity news recently again, where researchers at NCC Group published a blog post that really detailed some of the actions and tools that Lazarus takes during at least the initial access stage for their attacks. And so to start this week, I figured we could go some of those tools and techniques because some of them we've kind of highlighted on in previous discussions, but there's at least a few new-ish interesting ones in there too that can help you defend against a potential Lazarus attack going forward. Um, so first off, the, the research article by NCC Group basically starts out with a, an overview of how Lazarus tends to launch their attacks. They basically laid it out that, for the most part, initial entry almost always revolves around social engineering of some sort. So Microsoft and Google last year already reported on Lazarus's methods of basically establishing fake social media presences by like retweeting and sharing security content over the course of a few weeks or months to basically establish this baseline credibility and then using their followers to then link a quote unquote research blog post, which back then contained an actual Chrome zero day exploit that then went after some of these researchers that went to go view that blog post. Uh, lately, they've been impersonating Lockheed Martin employees with LinkedIn profiles all set up to make them look legitimate. Uh, they even used a domain called uh, global-job.org, which impersonates the legitimate globaljobs.org recruiting website. And they basically use this domain to deliver malicious Word documents that are disguised as job opportunities to people seeking contracts with defense uh, contractors. Um, as an aside, just since it was related to one of our predictions, uh, some folks might remember one of our predictions for this year was expect to see more smishing, as in text-based phishing type attacks, but ones that affect other messenger-based applications that aren't normal text. And I think they mentioned that WhatsApp, you know, among what you said, impersonating Lockheed Martin folks, they actually even also use WhatsApp to communicate with some of these folks they're trying to uh, socially engineer, since it seems to be a common enough app that even businesses use it with their employees. And it makes sense because like with some of these apps, especially WhatsApp, like you can set contact names on it so you can even spoof a name to make it look like you are someone that you aren't. Like I could set one up saying I'm Corey and set my profile picture to 
Corey's work profile picture just to add additional credibility. If they already had the LinkedIn profile, they can just use the same picture from that one and it coincides with the WhatsApp account. So yeah, I totally agree. Yep. So when it comes to that malicious Word document, they even had some, uh, the researchers had some details around that. So these days, Microsoft actually does a pretty good job of protecting people from themselves with Office documents. Um, they've got this concept of a, I don't, actually don't remember their exact terminology for it, but like an untrusted document where if you download a Word doc or a PowerPoint or Excel spreadsheet through your web browser or from an email attachment and like Outlook, it basically flags it with this flag on there that adds some additional protection. Uh, you see it in the form of when you open it, says it's like read only or uh, you have to enable content in order to access potentially some of the information on it. And that's to protect you from like exploits automatically triggering or protect you from potentially running macros or executing DDE. But basically that only works if you download that document directly from the web browser or your email client. Uh, Lazarus found that if you say stick it in a zip archive and then trick someone into downloading that zip archive, that flag never gets set, which means when you extract it from that archive and open it, a lot of those protections aren't enabled because to Microsoft's uh, visibility, it wasn't directly downloaded from the internet. It was just extracted from a zip file. Thought that was kind of interesting. And I have to imagine, like, obviously the ability for a security service to extract something from a zip file and potentially work on it is there. Like our, our Firebox does that to look for anti or for malware in zip archives. So I'd have to imagine Microsoft probably has something cooking to, as part of this whole process they have for protecting Word documents, potentially be able to set that flag in ones that come in archives as well too. I'd hope so. Obviously not there right now, but clearly that is necessary going forward. Um, so for these actual malicious documents, they were just typical macro malware, where if you were to extract them and run the macros, they use VBS code to then you execute the run DLL library, which basically allows the malware to load up a malicious library. Um, to then establish that initial command and control. Uh, they went into some details about the first stage of the malware. They called it LCP dot. Uh, it's basically just a typical downloader, uh, but it sets itself up as a scheduled task, masquerading as another process, in this case, Windows Java VPN interface. So if you're just looking through your scheduled tasks on your Windows machine, uh, you might potentially miss this because, hey, maybe it's just Java's VPN interface making a connection out which does, I don't know, Java doesn't have a VPN. Java is a programming language. That's kind of weird. But anyways, uh, so the malware itself disguises itself as a Java DLL, but it actually has a few characteristics that make it stand out. Uh, for example, it's actually a really large file, it's 60 megabytes, which is absolutely massive for a library. Um, and the researchers theorize that that's to help bypass some AV scanning um, because the overwhelming majority of malware is small, very small file sizes. Some scanners just assume if it's really big, potentially it's not malware and maybe they don't scan the whole thing or don't scan it at all in some situations. Net network more uh, so than endpoint. When you're scanning malware from a network level, you kind of have to temporarily you know, re reassemble the entire file and scan it in memory before you pass it on. So. Network in particular doesn't tend to do well with big files, or if they do, the streaming scanning actually gives up a lot of capability to detect network evasions. But yeah, no, I, I will say endpoint sometimes is a little better with 
with that because it has local execution. But yeah, good evasion technique. Uh, they also use this uh, technique called time stomping, where basically they copy a timestamp from another program uh, for the actual malware. So it looks like it's something that came along with your system or with a recent update, even if it was more recently installed. In this case, they copy timestamps from the command.exe program on the Windows machine it runs on. Uh, and also interestingly, so the library that it kind of, uh, that it saves in the storage, it saves it in the program data directory, but it's owned by the user instead of system or administrator, which most libraries and, or most files and program data as they're installed, their ownership is set to the system account or at least the system administrator account. So That was another red flag. Uh, when it comes to the actual like dropper functionality, it's all pretty much what you'd expect. It downloads encrypted payloads, decrypts them, loads them directly into memory, and executes them. So overall, though, like the big takeaway from this is, you know, the 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 social engineering aspect of this, where they're taking the time to, you know, not just send a phishing message, but to set up an entire fake persona with followers and connections in LinkedIn and shared topics, like all in, if they're targeting English speaking users, like all in perfect English, that they can then just one day down the line, flip the switch and use that persona to lure someone into falling for a fish. Like it's definitely the long con in this one. But I think a lot of APTs do that for entry point. I, I, I don't know about you, Mark, but I think as technical people, we get really interested in the technical vulnerabilities, like a really bad zero day that just gives unauthorized access without you having to socially engineer someone. And we get really fascinated by the technical details. But even the most advanced actors, their way in is typically human and social, it seems. I, I would say more than anything, social, social engineering is a big phishing and spear phishing in particular for all these big APT actors. So yeah, it deserves thinking about and to your point, it is, yeah, social networks and social media is trying to find better ways to validate real people. <laughs> I mean, including Elon Musk and Twitter. <laughs> I don't know what you think about Twitter, but he claims to help combat Twitter bots by uh, adding some so far unannounced extra human validation. But if you ever look into some of the technical ways these bad actors play with social engineering, they have tools that not only allows them to create create the one Lockheed Martin account, but to kind of automate creating hundreds of other accounts with pictures and data so that, because if you think about it, it's not just creating a really good fake Lockheed Martin user, it's making sure that user has a lot of connections. Like if you see a Facebook user pop up and try to friend you and they have no friends of their own, at least for me, that would set off my bot meter, right? Why is this account have no followers? Why do they, you know, they have information there, but they seem like a dead account. Nowadays, hey man, I can't help that I have no friends. <laughs> Good self-deprecation. But the point Continue. is they have these automated tools now that help them set up hundreds of accounts and attach them to each other so that it's not just, you know, they, they seem to have really good capability of making fake social social accounts that are much harder for normal folks to kind of recognize as fake. Yeah, and this really is like the new... Uh, frontier for social engineering is automating a lot of this like social network recon and account creation bit where like I guarantee they've got teams of or not necessarily people but programs going out there and staging all these so that you know next time they try and launch an attack we'll just pull one off the assembly line and use that one to carry it out 
and kind of frightening. It totally is, and I I can't help but think future and personal interests. But now we have V. You know, we're in this day and age of hybrid work, where I think we'll find more and more people working remotely, and things like VR or AR being part of the workplace, where maybe you log in in a VR headset and you're this avatar in a meeting room. I, I know that just sounds crazy science fictiony. But all that now is already tied to social networks. So now imagine a digital avatar and being able to fake the, I just, yeah. It is scary what you can do with fake, not even using really sophisticated technical attacks, although obviously the evasion they used when they did load malware was good, but just with basic smart social engineering. It's, uh, I'm interested to see what Elon's plans are for uh, authenticating people is it going to be in order to plug into the metaverse now you need to have like a Neuralink. oh god i hope it's not that bad that i don't want (laughs) if they do the blue check i I doubt they'll open up blue check validate verification to everyone because that has so much clout they like reserving that for folks but i bet you even though you may not get a blue check i bet you the vet I hear for blue check validation, they actually make you send some personal documents or show things like passport or driver ID. So my guess is Elon might institute that to have a normal account, even though they won't blue check validate you, you might have to share some more PII, real world PII, in order to be validated as a human. Which, Good. by the way, has That's what I love doing online. Exactly. More PII. I mean, that, that unfortunately, while I don't think he's going to publish our passport report to everyone the fact that they will have to store that data and see that data in order to validate is just extra risk that we're throwing in in twitter's control if if that is the way they do it that's my best maybe guess. we should just stop using social media i don't know uh, one of our threat researchers just sent a document about uh haven't had a chance to read it but the headline alone is something i can believe it sounds like taking a week off all social media makes all humans feel immensely better so, frankly, I don't even know why we use it. It's such an echo chamber I mean, of non-connection, in my opinion. I have not actively used Facebook specifically in probably two years now. There's been a few times I've logged in because my dumb friends keep sending me invites to like parties and stuff through it that I have to accept. But every time I log in, I just become irrationally ticked off at some of the stuff I see for that first five seconds popping up. It's... I. Ugh. I'm, I'm Man, with you. I, I do have a few friend groups that, that uh, communicate group events in Messenger, but I just don't post anymore, and I try to avoid looking at the posts. That said, I've still got my Twitter addiction I've got to solve, so we'll see how that goes. So either way, I guess, like, I don't know. If you uh, <laughs> just keep an eye out for somewhat suspicious-looking social engineering on uh, social media accounts... Or just follow the basic guidance of, you know, treat everything with skepticism, including links from people, especially that you don't know, and even people that you potentially do know. Yeah, that's what I was going to get to, Mark. I, I know we all, or at least some of us, like to be polite. But remember, skepticism isn't impolite. It's okay to be skeptical and ask people to verify themselves before you do anything significant with other people online. 100%. So moving on then to our next story. Uh, researchers at Kaspersky discovered a new method of deploying malicious shellcode and fileless malware attacks from a pretty sophisticated APT, at least based off the description. Uh, sneak peek at the end, they don't actually name who the APT is, which, you know, considering... See, because they, this, the... they, they wrote it and they're using it in a particular conflict themselves. <laughs> Sorry, I'm, I'm kidding. That's... Uh, I, 
I shouldn't be throwing shade on Kaspersky. They have nothing to do with the conflict, as far as we that know. We, know of. <laughs> we both couldn't Anyways. help ourselves. <laughs> uh, so, that said, their research is still fantastic, uh, which is why I still follow them. And so, the researchers published this post, uh, published this post basically detailing this new method of evasion for fileless malware. And they actually went through the entire attack from start to finish, and we'll get to the cool new method towards the end of this. But basically, the attack starts with threat actors attack, uh, tricking victims into downloading a malicious rare archive. Rare? RAR? I think you and I have had this argument before. I'm still going to call it rare, even though there's no E. Uh, and extracting what's ultimately a Cobalt Strike module inside of it. Uh, so Cobalt Strike being the very popular penetration testing tool for quote-unquote legitimate purposes. I mean, I guess it is used for legitimate purposes, but due to its power and strength, it is also widely used by threat actors as well. Um, oh, yes, Corey? I was just going to say, if people would just insist on taking their compressed files well done, they wouldn't run into this problem of rares. That was bad. <laughs> but it's RAR. I think everyone in the world calls it a RAR file. I don't know why. Anyways, All never right, mind. Whatever. Uh, so interesting. So the Cobalt Strike module is actually signed with a valid developer certificate. Uh, but they noted that that certificate does not appear to be used by any legitimate software. Uh, it was uh, provisioned for a company called Fast Invest APS. The contact email for that is just some random Yahoo email account. Because uh, the reality is, like, anyone can go get a developer certificate. Uh, I went through it for, like, a project that I worked on a couple years ago in my own free time. It's actually pretty simple. There's not a whole lot of validation that goes on for it, especially if it's, like, a personal certificate like this. And then you can effectively sign whatever the heck you want to write. And until you're caught actually using it for malicious software, it can help get you past a lot of potential endpoint protections that treat a signed executable differently than an unsigned one. Um, so in this case, it was a signed Cobalt Strike module. Uh, they also found a lot of the Silent Break toolkit within it as yeah, well. Yeah, I didn't know if you're going to mention that. I mean, this may be because in my new management position, I've become dumb and not do hands-on stuff. But while I think we both know Cobalt Strike well, I, I had not heard of Silent Break. Have you heard of them? Yeah, it seems to be like another up-and-coming toolkit. I can't actually tell if it's legitimately made or not or if it is just straight up made by bad actors it does, it does have a, seems to be a pretty legitimate website I, I assume it's put out by by silent break security and they they seem to to market it as attack simulation uh but they also do seem to sell things like vendor management password audit tools so okay seems relatively so, but new to me cobalt strike so competitor sharing yeah and metasploit i would assume but just pointing it out if anyone wants to go look at it, if you guys haven't heard of it either. Yep. Uh, for anti-detection measures, the attackers used several different non-standard compilers for this, including a bunch of Go-based toolkits as well. Yeah, we talked so we about mentioned these a few episodes ago. Yeah. Go ahead, sorry. Uh, talking about, what was it, like Rust-compiled malware and how that can sometimes make it more difficult to at least automatically detect in some cases. I think Go, Go is, is one of the ones I was one. thinking about and might have mentioned at the end. And I think when uh, we're talking about be... why, too, you know, we, we, we talked, I mean, one of the reasons is a lot of researchers just don't have decompilers for some of these non-unusual, or decryptors for these uh, uh, more unusual compilers or less common compilers. 
And they actually, Kaspersky even noted that it's kind of rare to see a Go wrapper for Cobalt Strike 2. Um, so that was an interesting tidbit as well. Um, when it comes to how the malware actually runs, it has a few interesting characteristics. So first off, um, it loads up the NTDLL library, uh, which is used for like logging and event monitoring within Windows. But it actually patches the copy of the library it loads up to basically remove a bunch of functionality for some of the event viewer stuff, which means if you go to try and debug this, enable debugging and see like what logs it generates, it's not going to generate anything, which is kind of interesting. Um, the malware only runs on hosts that are a part of a targeted domain. So they compile it and configure it to only work on a certain target, which is another uh, uh, anti-detection capability. Um, when it comes to persistence, uh, so it copies the legitimate uh, OS error handler uh, werfault.exe to a different location, so Windows Tasks, and then drops one of its encrypted library uh, resources into that same directory as a form of DLL search order hijacking. So we talked about search order hijacking, man, it probably was like a year ago or so. But basically, when a executable launches, it typically pulls in a bunch of shared libraries from Windows. Um, and when it tries to find those libraries, it's got a list of places that it looks. And typically it'll look in like its local installation directory. Then it'll look through like a few standard locations those libraries may exist within Microsoft Windows. And the first time it gets a hit, that's the library it loads up. And so in this case, by dropping a similarly named library in the local directory of this, when it executes, it'll grab that one and start launching it instead of the legitimate ones. We see malware do this, uh, bringing their own copy of like uh, Microsoft Defender, for example, that have had some of these search order hijacking vulnerabilities where a lot of anti-malware services and EDR services might whitelist Microsoft Defender's executable because it's legitimate. Um, but then they might miss it loading a illegitimate library as part of its startup, which basically then hijacks the functionality of that quote unquote legitimate process. Um, so the malware sets that uh, WER fault.exe to auto run. Uh, and then the really interesting bit about the, the evasion techniques it's using is once it executes, that malware searches the Windows event logs for records with the category of uh, hex value 4142 or the ASCII letters AB uh, that have the key management service as a resource. So it's actually looking for already staged shellcode. And if it's not there, it takes its malicious shellcode chunks it up into eight kilobyte chunks, and then writes them into log messages in Windows event logs. So basically every time it executes, it pulls all of its malicious shellcode out of Windows event logs, uh, which is the first time Kaspersky noted they've seen someone the using wild. that to stage malware. Yeah, yeah. Pretty, pretty fancy smart evasion techniques. And uh, definitely, you know, goes with the theme of living off the land, using legitimate tools and aspects of the operating system to your malicious advantage. It's crazy. Like now we got to start scanning logs to look for malware. I mean, half the time we're looking in our event logs to try to find <laughs> signs right. of badness. Now we actually might have to look at the logs as the source of badness. <laughs> it's crazy, man. What's well, it's a never-ending game of, you know, yeah. catch how they're doing it, and then they do something even more out of left field to try and mask their, positive, their attack Positive patterns. take is that's why we have job security. But you got to exactly. keep up with it. Definitely have to keep up with it. 
Uh, when it comes to the post-exploitation activity, uh, it's basically a typical Trojan, so it'll fingerprint the system, send it over an encrypted command and control connection using HTTP. By the way, that w uh, was interesting, not using classic HTTPS, but their own encryption over HTTP. Yeah, exactly. Um, the C2 domains it uses actually mimic legitimate software, so if you are actively monitoring like DNS queries out of your network, you may miss it like as, you know, misspellings or slightly different names for things that otherwise look legitimate. Um, and then when it comes to running on the system, it actually splits up a lot of the Trojans' work cycles into different threads and then uses named pipes for communication between them. Basically, instead of a single process having all the keys to the kingdom, all the malicious code, different actions are carried out by different processes. So if you aren't monitoring the system as a whole and piecing it together, it might be more difficult to detect. So when it comes to attribution, though, they said, quote, right now, we prefer not to name the activity and instead stick to just silent break, uh, given it is the most used among the tools here. Uh, so they don't didn't actually they said they believe it's a single threat actor, but they weren't going to name them, uh, which take that as you will. Uh, either way, though, still really cool research, uh, kind of scary research from the actual <laughs> techniques that it's using. But by the way, it's a deep I, as much as we we joked about Kaspersky at the beginning. And if you read the report, if you are a research type nerd person that wants to look at source, look at reversing, it's a very detailed report. Report, you know, it's on Secure List, which is Kaspersky's blog. Check it out. Yep, definitely check it out. Um, so, moving on now to the last story. Uh, so, if you remember, I. I imagine it's pretty hard to forget uh last october in the wake of the attacks against the kaseya vsa servers uh, the ransomware as a service operation known as our evil seemingly shut down after law enforcement hijacked their tor servers and infrastructure uh, which throughout that process also enabled the fbi to receive the master decryption key uh, to then help out all those organizations that have been impacted by this ransomware well a few weeks ago our evil regained access to their Tor website and began redirecting visitors to a new Tor website, uh, advertising a new ransomware operation. Or presumably our evil. I, I think we'll get, get into how I don't think everyone knows for certain, but I think it's the redirection from existing servers that is one of the keys that they do think whoever this is was associated with the original our evil. Yeah, so a bit of like how Tor kind of works and how they're able to regain access. Basically, uh, for those that are at least loosely familiar with Tor or dark websites, you know that they use this type of domain called a .onion address. So it's usually a bunch of like random looking characters followed by .onion. Uh, the reality is like how these websites are set up is first and foremost, they generate a private and a public key. That's all cryptography all the way down. And the domain, that .onion address, is really just a string derived from that public key. They put it through some algorithm, and it craps out that string. Uh, so you'll notice some organizations or people will sometimes keep generating these key pairs until they get one of these domains that's somewhat readable. Like Facebook's onion address actually starts with the word Facebook instead of just a bunch of random characters. I imagine they had to generate tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands to finally get a key that derived to something like that. Um, but for the most part, like that onion address is basically just a record locator, uh, that you can use to locate information about that 
hidden service, as it's called. So hidden service being a dark web website. Uh, during the setup, after creating that Onion uh, address, uh, it picks a handful of relays out there on the dark web in the Tor network to act as introduction points, as they're called, and it builds a circuit to them. It's basically building a tunnel to mask its location and shouting out the end of the tunnel, if you want to talk to me, I'm over here. Uh, then creates a hidden services descriptor, as it's called, which is basically just its public key and the addresses of those introduction points. It signs it with its private key for authentication, and then uploads it to the Tor network distributed hash table. So when you as the client that want to go visit it, you type in that whatever .onion address, and your Tor browser uses that shorthand domain to look up in that distributed hash table that description, uh, that hidden services uh, descriptor. Uh, your client will then pick one of those introduction points uh, and then build its own relay to what's called a rendezvous, rendezvous point, uh, where basically your client now is building this tunnel to another location to mask its location. And through that rendezvous point, it'll, attempt, it'll instruct it to build a connection to the, the hidden services, this bit of a complicated handshake kind of goes on. And long story short, you get this tunnel from the client to the web server that both is encrypted to protect the content of the communications that go through it, but also relays through these encrypted uh, relay points to protect the location and identity of both the client and the server. It allows them to talk without anyone knowing who they actually are along the way. It gets quite a bit more technical than that. I think we had a podcast back in 2000 and. 19 that we talked about an hour long on how this works highly recommend checking that out but anyways it basically boils down to if you control the private key of the hidden service you can then create a new location for that you can use that domain and advertise that service from new introduction points so likely when the fbi took over this domain it's they had control of the private key and they just introduced this hidden service under servers under its control and so now it seems like someone else that has access to that private key has uh, set up a new website on the dark web and redirected to this new kind of ransomware as a service offering. And for the past two weeks, researchers have been trying to figure out if it's, you know, an FBI honeypot or is it our evil in some capacity coming back? And researchers at Avast actually finally caught a new ransomware payload that appears to confirm that at least one of the core R-Evil developers is behind the new activity. So historically, for the past few months while they've been offline, we've still seen quote-unquote new R-Evil or Soda Nukubi ransomware payloads being spread around. But all of these have been patched versions of old R-Evil payloads. Basically, someone takes the already compiled ransomware patches their own maybe Bitcoin address in it or ransom note or whatever into it, and then releases that into the wild. Whereas this one appears to have been compiled from the original source code instead of patched. Uh, now, interestingly, it doesn't actually encrypt files. Yeah, that's the so thing. None I of mean, the researchers is, that found it. Yeah, this is all talking yeah. about the encryptor and analyzing the encryptor, and yet the encryptor doesn't encrypt in this apparently wild example of ransomware. So it's kind of weird that they found a wild payload that would throw up a message, but didn't actually encrypt files. As of the time of us recording this, like the, the guess so far is that they believe there's a whitelist in the ransomware that only looks for specific victims. And that's what allows it to potentially encrypt or not encrypt. 
could be this developer accidentally released the dev version. Maybe they're testing the propagation and not necessarily the encryption side of it. But either way, it was compiled from the original source code. So either someone got a hold of that or one of the core developers is at least restarting up the system. By the way, I don't know if it will help anyone guess what the intended victims are, but this configuration field is apparently ACCS. <laughs> so if that can help you guess a victim, I don't know what ACCS could stand for. But uh, I interpreted is... it as shorthand for accounts, but there's no T, so I don't know. I guess I, I would. I was thinking more shorthand for access, but that seems silly too. Yeah. I, 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 but who knows? But that is apparently the configuration option that says encrypt or not. This isn't much of a surprise, though. I think we even predicted the day after the takedown that, you know, this doesn't mean they're gone. Well, yeah, like, yeah. Until no, they no. arrest every member, like, it's going to come back probably under a different brand name. Like, usually they don't come back as the original brand. And by the, but, by the way, while sometimes it's definitely the same exact bot group coming back, we also expected the code to come back. I mean, the other thing that happens is sometimes they don't protect source so other groups can get source. As we saw, our evil was already still threatening folks even when the group had been disappeared in that other groups, to Mark's point earlier, were using a patched version. They could still use the malware, but they patched in their own encryptors. So yeah, any botnet, whether it's the group or just the botnet code, they never really disappear when, even when we take down parts of the group. By we, I mean authorities. We, we took down our, the, well, actually, the, I don't the want to industry. paint that target on our back. Yeah. <laughs> we, the American people, in partnership with our other Five Eyes nations. And I guess at And technically time, Russia. Russia. I mean, Russia, well. <laughs> this was weird for the first time they were you know, who are cooperating with us until the whole sanctions situation and us cutting yeah, off. They were cooperating with us and they we have since, actually, I think we, we the United States, back. exited that partnership yeah, because that's what understandable <laughs> circumstances. Yep. But either way, like, our evil is clearly back. They were one of the more successful ransomware operations while they were online. So just any of their developers back online is something to be somewhat concerned about. But... At the end of the day, the, the same tips still apply. Have a good BCDR plan, don't pay the ransom, and make sure you set up protections in a way where you can catch this style of attack, hopefully before it successfully executes. As an example, our evil was the ransomware that got into Kaseya. So just to add to the tip, that is a good tip for us too. Don't, ex don't expose administrative web interfaces to the whole internet. Yeah. That would be dumb, wouldn't it be? Yeah, not a great idea. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions on today's topics or suggestions for future episode topics, you can reach out to us on Twitter. Or how to properly pronounce acronyms and file extensions. R-R-O underscore. Corey's at SecAdept. And the both of us are at hashtag the 443 podcast. I don't think anyone actually listens this far. So if you do, yeah. maybe shout out to us on Twitter to let us know. Yeah. <laughs> With that, hashtag though, the 443. It's rare. <laughs> I'll see and you then Mark next wins, week. So don't do that. <laughs>